Welcome to Nature Revisited, the podcast. Nature Revisited is pleased to have satin flower nurseries from Vancouver Island, British Columbia, as our sponsor for this episode. Danny Baker, the Enchanted Edible Forest Garden. This is Kristen Muskelly from Satinflower Nurseries, native plants, seeds, and consulting located on the southern tip of Vancouver Island, British Columbia, within the traditional unceded territories of the Coast Salish peoples. Our native plant nursery aims to inspire and empower people to connect with nature through native plants. Satinflower Nurseries has been built around a respect for local ecosystems and a drive to inspire you to help nature. We grow exclusively Indigenous plants to our region and welcome visitors year-round to our main location. We also host an array of workshops and events related to growing native plants and restoration. To learn more about us, visit satinflower.ca. Thank you, Stefan, for including us as a sponsor for Nature Revisited, our favorite nature podcast. We appreciate and are inspired by your work to bridge people with nature. We share a similar mandate. I am joined today by Danny Baker, who is the author of the new book, the home-scale forest garden. Her enchanted edible forest garden is located at Cross Island Farms on Wellesley Island in the St. Lawrence River between New York and Canada. Danny takes particular pleasure in inspiring others to try their hand at forest gardening and conducts workshops and tours at her garden as well as her speaking engagements across the Northeast. So welcome, Danny, to Nature Revisited. How is everything up in the St. Lawrence Seaway? It's, it's a beautiful day. It's overcast, a little breezy, 75 degrees, really nice. How about where you are? About the same. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a good day to work outside. Yes, I hope, I hope to do that after our interview. And thank you for joining me to talk about your book, The Home Scale Forest Garden, How to Plan, Plant, and Tend a Resilient Edible Landscape. You say you live on the St. Lawrence River. How did that happen? Well, I'm on an island in the St. Lawrence River. The island happens to be interstate access, so I don't need a boat to get to my house. How did this happen? Well, I grew up just north of New York City when it was very countrified then, and then I spent my summers in the Adirondacks where my parents worked in a resort hotel in the summer. So I kind of fell in love with the landscape of northern New York State as a child. And then when I, when I was looking for land so I'd have something to do after I retired, I came to a 100-acre former dairy farm on Wellesley Island, and it looked just like the Adirondacks where I grew up. I fell in love with the landscape immediately, and it turns out Wellesley Island is, is part of the same geologic substructure as the Adirondacks, so no wonder. 
that's how I ended up on Wellesley Island. <laughs> so how important was nature and the outdoors to you growing up? It was extremely important. In northern Westchester, we had, we, I moved when I was around five to a house that was built on a former cornfield. And it was a new development, and that was, it was still very rural in that part of, of New York State. There were, were fields and woods and a pond nearby. And I spent many, many hours wandering around the landscape. I taught myself to identify trees. I had a little tree book, and I'd go through the woods, and I'd, I'd look at the tree, and I'd guess what it was, and I'd check the book, and sure enough, I had it right. And also, I have to tell you this, this story. So I'm wandering around, and one day I found these corn kernels on top of a rock with an indentation in the top. Now, remember, I'm five, six, seven years old. I was sure that the Native Americans had ground their corn there. And I picked up the corn very preciously, and I brought it home like it was some kind of prize. Well, of course, it was just left over from the cornfield that had been there. But to me, it really resonated. And then, of course, in the summers, we were in the foothills of the Adirondacks with pine forests and all kinds of berry, you know, wild berries everywhere. And I would wander around and just enjoy being in nature. So yes, very much, very important to me. So what was your profession before you retired? And share with us your forest garden story. Well, um, I was a psychologist. I worked for the New York State prison system. When I was getting close to retirement, I need to feel productive and I need to have some structure to my day. And I was really worried about all the idle time I'd have. So we bought this property, as I mentioned, and we weren't planning to be farmers, but we took a class that inspired us to try our hand at farming. And we did it for one year and we sold some vegetables and I thought, this is the answer to my dilemma about not having enough idle time. If I'm a farmer, I won't have any. So my partner had a, a childhood dream of being an organic farmer. So the two of us just started this farm and over the years it developed. We have annual vegetables. We have beef and pork and goats and chickens and ducks. And then in the seventh year, I took a class at Cooperative Extension, our local Cooperative Extension, on permaculture. And I'd never heard the term before. But the concepts made so much sense to me. It was like a revelation that I decided then and there, before the two hours was up, that I was going to plant an edible forest. And I came home and told my partner, and he very generously found a, a half an acre plot that he could spare from his pasture and built me a, a good fence uh, to keep the deer out because you can't have deer coming and nibbling your seedlings. And that was the beginning. So how does a forest garden or an edible garden, how does that differ from a more traditional garden? Well, first of all, it's primarily perennial plants. So a traditional vegetable garden would be mostly annual vegetables. This is primarily perennial and some self-seeding annuals. Then you're going to be using all the vertical space. So in a traditional garden, you're basically just using the herbaceous layer. In this kind of garden, you're going to go up as high as you can. So if you can only go up to the shrub layer, which is around... 12 feet, that's fine. Or if you can go all the way up into the overstory, which could be up to 100 feet, even better. So you're using all the vertical space. You're not disturbing the ground at all. You, once you plant, you're done. And the ground is covered 
always with something living or mulch, but some organic matter, just like in the floor of a forest where you either have a, a cushion of leaves or pine needles, the ground is always covered. You're not going to do any tilling. And as the forest garden develops, because the ground is covered, weed seeds don't have much of an opportunity to take hold. So there's less weeding. You're going to build in all of the nutrients that your food-producing plants need through other plants. So you're not going to need to add any amendments over time. You're also going to build in some protections through plants and beneficial insects and animals against uh, pests, insect pests, and also against disease. So you'll minimize your need to address those things in terms of human labor. It's very exciting to me. Take perennial vegetables, for example. You plant them once, and then you harvest them for years, years going forward. With an annual vegetable garden, you have to do the same thing year in, year out. You have to till, you have to plant your seeds or your sets, you have to cultivate, you have to water, all of that. All of this is taken care of by nature in an edible forest. So you answered my next question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What are some of the benefits of the forest garden versus the traditional garden? Well, the first thing I think of in answer to that is the abundance. There's more harvesting to do every year. The bushes get bigger. They hold more berries. The trees start bearing tree fruits, the nuts eventually, the nut trees will eventually produce a harvest. Most of the ground covers are edible, so there's just a huge amount of food. Plus, it starts really early. It starts in April. Actually, it starts before April. I dig my sunchokes in March, just after the ground appeared to frost. And I, can, I continue harvesting right through November, sometimes into December. So there's a much longer harvest period than in an annual vegetable garden. The amount of labor compared to an equal-sized plot of annual vegetables is greatly reduced as time goes on, as I explained earlier, because nature takes care of so many things that humans do in an, in an annual vegetable garden. You don't totally disregard the traditional garden, do you? No, I have a different different place where I put my traditional vegetables. You know, there are some plants, some self-seeding plants like lettuce, which is, is very simpatico with the idea of a forest garden because they do self-seed if you let them go to seed, and then you'll have new lettuce the following year or later that, that season. So you could do that. My forest garden happens to be a little bit of a distance from my house. It's like an eighth of a mile down the road. My vegetable garden is much closer. Vegetable gardens tend to require daily attention. Certainly you can have both. Some people integrate annual vegetables into a forest garden. Other people keep them separate. Uh, one does not replace the other. You can't, a, a tomato, there's no perennial tomatoes that I know of unless you live in the tropics. I think both is the ideal situation. That's what I do. My forest garden happens to be a little distance from the house, and it's separate from my annual vegetable garden. If you wish, you can certainly integrate the two, and in my book I do talk about some ways to do that. You say in your book that it was a talk on permaculture that really led you to the forest garden. So for those who are listening and might not be familiar with the term permaculture, can you define it and talk about why it is so important to the forest garden? 
Of course. So rather than me define it, I'm going to just read you Bill Mollison's. He's one of the founders of permaculture. His definition, and he says permaculture, which he defined as permanent agriculture, is the conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive ecosystems which have the diversity, stability, and resilience of natural ecosystems. So in other words, you're modeling your garden after nature. In fact, in in a forest garden, it's not like the deep woods where there's a lot of shade. You're modeling after a forest edge where a lot of sunlight comes in and you have a huge diversity of life, both, both plant life and animal life. There are several principles in permaculture that... I've adopted and applied in my garden. Permaculture goes way beyond a forest garden. It can teach you which stove to decide to buy or or build for your house and many other things. The, The principles that I've applied, first of all, is maximize diversity. So in my garden, I have over 300 different kinds of plants, mostly all mixed up. (laughs) so that pests are more confused. Maximizing solar absorption, so that's where all the layers come in, where you're absorbing all the solar radiation that is available. Maximizing water conservation, and there's many techniques for doing that. Designing for sustainability. Now, in this and to do that, you incorporate, as I mentioned earlier, plants that will support the food-producing plants in a number of different ways. And you also want to build in redundancy. So for any any item that you decide to include in the garden, you want to make sure that they fulfill three functions, at least three functions, so you're not wasting space on a plant, for example, that's only doing one thing for you. You also want to have a lot of redundancy. So water is very important. It's it's great to have three or more sources of water. There's an expression that I learned from an army friend. Two is one and one is none. So if you only have two ways of supplying some important function and you lose one, now you only have one. You're very close to none. But if you have three, there's some insurance that even if one or two fail, you're still going to be able to provide that function. Redundancy from that standpoint and also having anything you incorporate have at least three functions really maximizes the productivity of your garden. So how does permaculture and organic kind of overlap each other, and how are they connected? In organic agriculture, you don't use any man-made pesticides, herbicides, fungicides, or fertilizers. You can use approved things that are more natural of all of those things. In permaculture, you attempt to have nature provide all of those benefits. So you're not using chemicals, but you're also not using even natural substances. You're, you're having your arrangement of plants and the way you invite natural predators into your garden to provide all those services. So how do you select what plants to grow? I wasn't that familiar with perennial plants when I started this garden. So I just read a lot of books and looked at a lot of catalogs and anything that I thought I could grow, I tried to grow. As long as it was within one hardiness zone of my region, I'm in zone four, which means that our average minimum temperature in the winter is between minus 20 and minus 30. 
Zone 5 has a, has a low, uh, the average low minimum temperature between minus 10 and minus 20. So I thought, well, I'm going to push the envelope. If I, if I can grow something that's really more suitable to a slightly warmer winter, I'm the only one who's going to have it. <laughs> and I was betting that global warming might make our winters more mild going forward. And I also, um, any, any plant that I think is going to be vulnerable to the cold, I try to put it in a microclimate or create a microclimate that is going to be conducive to its, its happiness. It hasn't always worked out, but I've been trying to do that. And then, you know, I, anything that I thought I, I could grow that I thought I would enjoy eating or that maybe someone else might enjoy eating, I plant it. So how important is diversity in your garden? when it comes to the plants that you choose to grow? Well, it's really important. In nature, there are very few monocultures. I mean, you can find them. Sometimes there's a, there's a stand of white birch that stands alone. But most natural habitats have a diversity of plants. And so I wanted to model my garden after that. Do you have non-food producing plants in your in your garden? Yeah, I have some non-food producing plants that support the other plants. Some of them have other benefits though, like medicinal value. So comfrey is an example. Comfrey is a plant, it's called a nutrient accumulator. It's in that class. So it pulls up nutrients from the subsoil. It actually concentrates six different nutrients in its leaves, including phosphorus and potassium, which are very important for plant growth. It's a herbaceous perennial. So the leaves die and decay over the winter. And as they do that, all those nutrients become available to the surrounding plants. And you can also cut and drop it. But that's not the only function it serves. It has lovely lavender flowers that are very attractive to pollinators. It also is, is a, a, an attractive plant to the human eye. So it has aesthetic value. And then it's a habitat for spiders. They like to be under a lot of, you know, dense leaves. It also is very useful medicinally. I don't know if you've ever heard of using comfrey to uh, mend a broken bone or to heal a sore on the skin, but traditionally it's very useful for those purposes. So there's an example of a plant that fulfills, what did I already mention, five functions, <laughs> but no food function. When it comes to acquiring plants for, for, for the forest garden, does my local nursery have the kind of plants I'm looking for? And if not, how reliable are mail order plants? Um, I don't know if your local nursery does. Mine do not, by and large. I've mostly ordered from mail order places and mostly a bare root stock. And over the years, I've determined which nurseries give me stock that does well for me and which nurseries do not. In my book, I do, in my resource section, I do list some nurseries that I found very positive, but everybody's different. For example, if you're in a southern state where these principles apply, they don't have to, you don't have to be in a cold area, you might be best getting stock from nurseries that are also in warmer climates so that the plants they send you may be better adapted to your warm climate versus if you live in the northern part of the country or, Canada, or southern Canada, you might want to source your plants from nurseries in a similar hardiness zone so the likelihood of their surviving in yours would be increased. I think more and more nurseries are seeing there's a demand for this and expanding. So how does the hardiness zone affect my plant selection? 
And can one have a forest garden in the warmer climates? Absolutely. I think in the States, the zones range from three to about nine. And many plants are suitable for that whole range. Some of them are restricted to the lower part of the range, like maybe two to six, like a, a tree called tamarack doesn't do well in a warmer climate than six, but then some of them cover the whole gamut. So absolutely, you can do this kind of gardening in any any place, even in India, which is mostly tropical. Traditionally, in tropical areas, people had forest gardens surrounding their houses, and they supplied almost all their needs from the, the plants surrounding their houses. So you can certainly do it even in a tropical area. How long should I expect or can I expect to see some of the fruits of my labor? And how long does it take to kind of start one and to see the results? First, there's a lot of, of time spent in planning. You really need to study your land and understand the quality of the soil, how the sun moves around it, any obstacles, you know, what kind of shade, what kind of sunlight you have, the water table, how does the wind blow, all of these things are important to understand and actually note and even map. And then once you do that, uh, you can start planning any infrastructure you decide you want. You, you may not need any or desire any, but if you do, that would be one of the first steps. And then start planning where you're going to place your, your plants and choosing them as well. You do have to consider, you kind of do the planning in, I'd say, four dimensions. So you're going to plan it in terms of the length and width on your ground, but also the height, and then you're going to be planning it in time because some of your trees may not reach mature size until maybe 50 years, in which case you have to keep them at the, prop, the proper distance from another one when you plant it so they'll have room to spread out. So these are all important, but you don't have to wait 50 years to get a benefit. If you decide to plant any culinary herbs, you can usually start harvesting them the first year. Some berry bushes you can start harvesting the first year, certainly by the second year. Things like strawberries, which are semi-perennial, um, you'll be harvesting the first year. So you don't have to wait a long time to get a benefit. There are some plants, of course, that may take a good deal longer, and you may choose not to plant them because you want a more immediate return. Um, I have... I have a whole diversity of plants, some that I could harvest the first year, second year, third year, and all the way into who knows when in the future. I planted some Siberian uh, nut pines that I was told by the nursery I would get I would get pine nuts from them in 40 years. And so this is my motivation to live to be past 100 so I can harvest pine nuts from my Korean nut pines. So that is one thing about your book that I will say to our listeners, that you really do show folks that initial part of the of how to plan for the garden. I mean, you, it's well done in your book that, that how important that part is. What might be the initial cost and what kind of yearly budget should one might expect? Well, you know, that will vary so much on what your goals are and, you know, how ambitious a garden you want to plant and also how and where you source your plants. If you don't, if you're not interested in, in any infrastructure that's going to cost you for materials or labor, you don't have to worry about that part. You can do it all by hand. In fact, 
I started with a half acre and then I developed a second half acre and specifically not using any machinery or any expensive uh, infrastructure materials so I could show people you don't need a lot of money to do this. In terms of plants, if you have neighbors and friends who have uh, berry bushes that they might want to give you a cutting or if they have seeds from some of their perennial plants that they are willing to give you, even tree seeds, you can grow your own and you can totally minimize your cost. There are several nurseries that do sell small bare root trees for very reasonable amounts. I find the smallest stock is the most resilient. If you're willing to wait for your, your plants to develop in size, you're going to be probably better off getting smaller plants than the larger ones. And then you, you can start small. So, you know, I do, you don't need a big plot of land for this. You can just use one side of your house. Like if you have a 20-foot long foundation, you can plant a far, you can employ the principles of forest gardening in that smallest space, maybe 20 by 6 feet. You can also have one fruit tree surrounded by other beneficial plants and fruit-producing plants like a fruit tree and then bushes and some perennial vegetables and ground covers just in, in a maybe a 10-foot wide circle in your yard. Or you can plant an edible hedge that can screen your view of your neighbors and also provide food for you and for the birds. So it doesn't have to be a huge, ambitious undertaking. I really recommend you start small. Your cost will be less, too. And then as you grow in confidence, you may want to expand on that. How do you address the issue of wildlife and how to keep animals from eating the produce? Well, there's some wildlife you really want to invite into your garden, and there's others that you want to exclude. So for us up here, deer is a biggie that we want to exclude. We built a very heavy-duty post-pounded fence that's uh, electrified to keep the deer out. Not just the deer, but we have animals on our farm, so we had to make sure the pigs and the goats and the beast cows didn't get in there when we didn't want them in there. So we built a very heavy-duty fence. But I found in terms of protecting, if I didn't have a fence, I could protect uh, my seedlings, my tree seedlings, and my ground cover by a couple of simple, simple methods. I devised these upside-down tomato cages so I take a tomato cage, I turn it upside down so the, the big circle is on the ground, I wrap it with um, a chicken wire, and then I secure it over my seedling using garden staples. And that keeps the deer away until the tree is tall enough to be taller than where the deer reach, and then I remove it. So that works for seedlings. And then I find for um, herbaceous plants like strawberries that deer really like or tulips, by the way, tulips are edible. If I just take a piece of row cover and I drape it over those plants, the deer and the rabbits don't realize there's plants underneath and I can protect them. Birds do eat bugs and I invite them in, but there's certain berries, especially during June when they're feeding their young, that they really like blueberries, like blueberries or honeyberries. I do net the berries to keep the birds from eating them while they're ripening. But in general, you want, you want to invite your birds in because they eat bugs, and you want to invite all kinds of wildlife in, toads and frogs and spiders and all kinds of beneficial insects, and there are plants that you can incorporate that do this for you. Does domestic animals play any role in the edible forest garden? 
Well, in our case, we use them to get the, the ground ready initially. We had we put pigs in there to root out the, the deep-rooted perennial weeds, and, and we put in our beef cattle and our goats to eat the foliage because we have a farm. We have those animals. If you just have a little backyard, you might have chickens. Chickens can be very useful. They can eat weed seeds. They can eat bugs. I didn't use chickens initially because um, I used a lot of wood chip mulch and they tend to scratch it up and, and bear the ground and I didn't want bare ground. Ducks can be very useful. Ducks love slugs and they're quite delightful to watch if you have a pond uh, swimming around and having, we, <laughs> we call our ducks party ducks because especially, you know, in the middle of the night, they, they're just frolicking around. Those animals can be useful in your garden, but you don't have to have them. You can just invite wildlife in. We all know that the climate is changing. How might you address that, that the forest garden is actually something that's beneficial to that situation? Very much so. So in, in quite a few ways. Um, first of all, you're, you're not disturbing the ground at all. And as your trees and plants get bigger, you're sequestering more and more carbon in the stems, the roots, the leaves of the plants, but also in the ground in a stable form called humus because the soil is improving constantly because of all of the natural processes that are going on um, incorporating organic matter inside the soil. So in all those ways, you're reducing the carbon in the atmosphere in a small way, but at least you're not making the situation worse. Then the amount of diversity in your garden allows, makes it possible for you to have bountiful harvest, even if some plants are affected by, by severe weather events, you have other plants that are thriving. So for example, this past winter was a very harsh winter for us up here. It got down to minus 20 or below five different times, but in, in between it was up above freezing. So the plants were very confused. Is it time to butt out at spring? No, it's 20, minus 20. I have a lot of winter till this year actually more than I've ever had, I think because of that, that roller coaster ride that the temperature took. But I also have a lot of plants that are thriving. They're loaded with berries. I can't wait to start harvesting next month. That would be in June. And so the diversity in a garden like this really helps weather a lot of the changes in climate and severe, severe weather events. It's very resistant to drought because you have your ground covered all the time. And by something living and the shade also helps to conserve water. And also all of the foliage in the ground cover also helps when you have these severe rain events, helps to keep the water on your property and soak in the ground rather than run off. So there's many ways that an edible planting like this does really help the earth, but also resist the changes in climate. What draws you spiritually and emotionally to your forest garden? It's more than just growing food. When I was a child, I used to I used to love going out every day and observing in the spring and summer and observing the subtle changes in every plant overnight. And in a forest garden, you get to experience this manifold times. I'll go out there with some goal in mind and I'll start wandering around and I'll, oh, look, this is about to flower. Oh, look, here's a, here's a nest of caterpillars that's been eaten by birds and there's no caterpillars left. 
oh, look, here's a plant that decided to grow here that I didn't intend, but I kind of like it. I'm going to leave it. And just wandering around and observing all the changes that happen literally overnight and just the, the odors from all of the flowering plants, the birds and the bees and all the sounds that nature's creating. And then when it comes time to harvest, all of the wonderful flavors and colors of all the, the fruits and berries, it just, I don't know, it's just mesmerizing. You call your garden the enchanted edible forest. What makes a forest garden so enchanting? I named it that because many people who visit my garden spontaneously called it a magical place. And people don't want to leave when they come into the garden. It's sort of like when you walk down a path in the woods and you just feel this transporting presence of nature, and that's what you feel in the garden. So it's a magical place. So Enchanted, Ed I like alliteration, Enchanted Edible Forest captured that magical quality. enjoyed my conversation with Danny Baker on forest gardening. If you want to learn more, check out her book, The Homescale Forest Garden, or visit her at her website, crossislandfarms.com. Nature Revisited would like to thank Satin Flower Nurseries for sponsoring this edition of Nature Revisited. The music is Overpass by Ben Cosgrove. If you enjoyed this episode, please share with friends, family, and colleagues. You can follow Nature Revisited on Instagram, YouTube, or at our website, nordenproductions.com. That's Norden, N-O-O-R-D-E-N, productions.com. Nature Revisited is produced by Stefan Van Norden and Charles Gagan. And I hope you will join us for the next edition of Nature Revisited. And in the meantime, do remember, we are nature. Nature.